Even as he spoke, many believed in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I make it no secret that I enjoy a good comedian autobiography. Most recently, I finished listening to a collection of interviews entitled So Many Steves, Afternoons with Steve Martin. Mr. Martin is known as a lover and collector of art, so it came as no surprise when he would sprinkle in offhand sayings from artists. One in particular caught my ear. Ed Ruscher was quoted as saying, bad art is wow, followed by huh? Good art is huh? Followed by wow. Using the Ruscher rubric, I think our gospel passage today is really good art. These are uncomfortable exchanges that seem either esoteric, maybe mean, maybe both. There are well-known sayings of Jesus, ones we use for comfort and inspiration, that are spoken in a harsh and foreign context. It's hard to read our gospel passage and not think, huh? This morning, we're going to dive into the tension together, into the confounding nature of this passage in hopes that the Holy Spirit will lead us to at least the beginnings of wow, to Jesus himself. To that end, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear his word to us, and hearts that perceive your presence in and among us this day. Illuminate your word for us that we may follow him more fully. Amen. So let's jump in. We'll work our way through our passage today under three headings. Courtroom drama, getting fired, and finally, who are you? First, courtroom drama. We read, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, previously encouraged the other Pharisees to go and hear, talk to Jesus, see what he's really about. And this is the first time, other than Nicodemus' personal visit to Jesus, that the Pharisees have talked directly to Jesus in John's Gospel. And Jesus kicks off the conversation. I am the light of the world. Commentators agree that Jesus' statement about being the light of the world was provocative. It wasn't toothless. The Pharisees would have heard in Jesus' words an exclusivity in his claim. There are no other lights. They would have heard in Jesus' words a claim to power over life, power to illuminate the path of right living. But the Pharisees didn't ask about that. Their challenge didn't get at those claims 
They used courtroom language because they were, in a sense, putting him on trial, trying to call witnesses and citing legal precedent from Leviticus. If you and I are having a conversation after service and we happen to disagree and I shout, objection, it would be weird. <laughs> you, would be, you would look around and say, wait, where are we? And that's kind of the response we're getting here from these Pharisees. Now, to be fair, there were other witnesses Jesus could have called. John the Baptist, the disciples, people he had healed. But it's clear from the beginning that calling them would not have made a difference. No answer he gave was going to be acceptable. So there's this conflict here at the beginning, and Jesus amplifies the tension with his response. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. I read this passage and I can't help but ask, was Jesus being defensive? Coming out of anybody else's mouth, it would certainly sound that way. I don't judge, but if I did. <laughs> and beyond that, why say these parts at all? If we cut straight to verse 17, the gist would still be there. You need two witnesses, say the Pharisees. One is me, the other is the father. Check and mate. <laughs> what then are we to make of verses 14 to 16? Sometimes we offer rationales and backstories in defensive ways, in ways that attempt to keep the judgment of others at bay. What you have to know is Drew was out of town, and I was struggling with a full week. <laughs> That's code for, I don't want you to judge me for the multiple fast food places that will feature in the story to come. LAUGHTER Sometimes it's a move to put someone at arm's length when we're feeling vulnerable. But other times, a preamble or an explanation before the answer is in fact an invitation in. It comes from a place of voluntary self-disclosure, not insecure self-protection. In the 4th century, Cyril of Alexandria had this to say about our passage. They attack him as though he is one of us. Without hesitation, they say, your record is not true of the one who cannot lie. And yet, he decided to lead, them, lead by the hand those who had gone astray, telling them what they had missed about him when they committed sacrilege by ascribing love of lying to him who is from above and begotten of the God the Father. Your response tells me you missed something. So I'm going to cover that first. That's a good teacher. And if we're honest, 
we know we too miss things about Jesus. Our beliefs about him are incomplete at best as evidenced by the way we respond to him and the world around us. We need him to lead us by the hand when we have gone astray. But in doing so, there are going to be moments when we feel his first words to us, his preamble, missed our question. We feel like he missed our prayer. And sometimes we desperately want him to cut to the chase and instead give us more of himself. And and instead, he chooses to give more of himself in ways we did not want nor invite. Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us through the icy waters of grief and loss. We say, I am in pain. And instead of him saying, pain be gone, he says, I am with you. Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us across a bed of nails, each one a complicated relationship with no clear resolve on the horizon. We say, this is tearing me up on the inside. And instead of him saying, leave them all behind, he says, I love you. Jesus takes us by the hand and leads us into new beginnings, but the fog is thick, and even in a season of opportunity, we feel disoriented and afraid of messing it up. We say, Tell me I've got this. And he says, I know where I came from and where I am going. Follow me. Where in our lives might we be tempted to cut to the chase? Where in our life or in our life together as a community might we need to listen to the words for which we did not ask? May the Spirit give us grace to hear and receive him, to put our hand in his, and to follow. Next, getting fired. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. If we don't have a little bit of cross-cultural help, along with some humility, this exchange for Jesus is not a good look. First, there's no question that it is literally a a little high and mighty. And I think a sticking point is that sometimes in our fellowship with Jesus, we ever so slightly over-identify with him. Gosh, it sounds so superior. I would never want to sound that superior. Oh, wait, Jesus is superior. (laughs) Jesus is the one who gets to say that, right? (laughs) That's not cruel. 
it'd be dishonest and misleading if he didn't say it. He's not the bad boss who treats us like we're from below and they are from above. He's God incarnate. And to leave out that fact would tempt us terribly to subordinate the one who is ultimate. So we take his words with humility, not as a fellow aggressive jerk human who might say, I'm just telling it like it is, (laughs) but is God himself letting us know him teaching us to relate to him. Humility requires that we receive his words differently than we would receive anyone else's. And second, there are some cross-cultural pieces that even given humility could still be difficult for us to parse out. Using the boss example again, the late scholar Kenneth Bailey put it this way. In American culture, when your boss says, you're fired, you know it's over. Often you get the word on a Friday afternoon so you can pack up and quietly be gone with minimal conversation or drama. But in Middle Eastern culture, in Jesus' context, when your boss says, you're fired, that's the beginning of a conversation. It is to say, this is an extreme warning that you are about to be out of a job. It's serious but it's not the actual firing. It's a chance for the employee to come to the boss and say, where have I gone wrong? What needs changing? Many of Jesus' parables end with the king, the master of the banquet, the employer saying, get rid of them to whoever has wronged them. What you won't see in the text is, and so they were disposed of. Jesus isn't telling the story to announce the verdict. He's telling the story in the context of the culture in a way that gives his hearers every opportunity to hear and see clearly what is at stake. The desire is not that the offender would be cosmically canned. The desire is to draw them to repentance. The desire is that they would be saved. It's not the great judgment. It's the great warning. And they missed it. They immediately honed in on the part they could believe the worst about and completely overlooked the warning of dying and their sin. But Jesus hung in there with them. He said it again, this time giving more clues as to what would shift their predicament. Believe that I am he. In this time when a Jewish teacher confronted someone who is about to be executed for their transgressions, they would exhort the condemned to do two things. First, confess your wrongdoings. And second, believe that your death will make atonement. Jesus changes the recipe. Confession is implied in the setup, but hanging in the air is the most provocative of all the teachings of Jesus. It is his death that will make the atonement. His own death will open the way of grace. Yes, confess your wrongdoing, but second, believe this, that I am who I say I am. In our Nicene Creed, we have statements based on the witness of the Spirit in Scripture and in the early church about who we believe Jesus to be. 
And I want to highlight one part of that for us because it's a thread in our passage today. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Just as the incarnation heralds the great warning, as Jesus says multiple times in John that he has not come to judge the world, but to save it, he also says there will be a day when he comes to judge. Jesus will return, and the great day of judgment will commence. It is the mercy of God to not let the state of things go on forever, to not ultimately abandon us to what we have wrought. And it's the love of God that sustains the world even now, allows for beauty and truth and goodness to push through the rubble, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We see this dynamic, this mercy, this love of God, alive and active in our passage today. May we receive the warning of Jesus, not as condemnation, but as the means of grace to turn and believe Finally, let us consider the question put to Jesus. Who are you? Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. On one hand, I appreciate the clarity of the question. On the other hand, Jesus has been revealing himself at every turn. (laughs) Amply so. He begins with self-disclosure. He persists in self-disclosure twice when they miss. I'm reminded of a character in Arrest Development named Anne Veal. (laughs) The running joke was that she was totally and completely overlooked. Someone says, it's nice to meet you, and she replies, you just let me in five minutes ago. (laughs) The starkest example was in the school's yearbook. Under her picture, it read, not pictured. (laughs) The Pharisees are asking Jesus who he is, but that's what he's been talking about. He's given them his portrait, and they've written, not pictured. Jesus' response is a bit like someone taking a deep breath and typing, as per my previous email. (laughs) It's the patience of Jesus in action. May he be so patient with us. In the face of a pretty offensive question, (laughs) Jesus' reply to the Pharisees was accurate and was patient. And at the same time, when he said, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, he increases the color saturation of the scene for readers of John. In that one sentence, we are called back to John 1. And by proxy, Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus knew where he was coming from and where he was going. He and the Father are, as Tertullian put it in the second century, inseparably two. As Jesus says in our passage, I am not alone. I stand with the Father. And second, we're called back to the setting of our passage Jesus and the Pharisees are situated in the temple courts, and his teaching takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles. The details of this feast are found primarily in Leviticus, and I will use a summary for your sake. But professor and preacher Daryl Johnson summarized it this way. Tabernacles celebrates the 40 years Israel spent wandering in the desert. 
when God graciously provided water and food, when God graciously guided the people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and when the people lived in tents and God graciously dwelt among them in a tent called the tabernacle. Is this not the Jesus we have come to know in John's gospel? The one who gives us living water in the desert. The one who is himself our bread of life. The one who tabernacled among us. The one who is the light of the world, a pillar of fire, blazing in the night, bidding us to follow. And where is he leading us? Not to any particular worldly kingdom. Then he would only be the light of Israel, the light of one particular persuasion. This is not the same exodus as before. Not into hyper-individualized kingdoms of self. That would be darkness. Rather, he leads us in this new exodus into the kingdom of God, into the life of God himself, which will one day fill the earth as waters fill the sea. Not only is this guide competent, not only does Jesus know where he's going, he's also good. Who are you? Jesus is the one who sticks it out in conversation with the Pharisees. Jesus is the one who sticks with his wavering disciples. Jesus is the one who sticks it out with the messy church. Let us not forget his tenacity and generosity. And let us not mistake his patience with us and with others for a lack of power or will as someone to whom we can half-heartedly be attentive. But let us believe and draw near to this pillar of fire, this light of the world, who is ready today to receive us at his table and in his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.